Hello again. <laughs> Thank you so much to um, worship team. I really love that we have spent some time in those songs because I think they really frame what I want to talk about tonight well because we sit here in the grace of Jesus and the gospel is the good news that we find forgiveness and freedom and redemption in him. The story we're going to sit in tonight is going to take us back into the darkness. It's a story that is really dark and ugly and about sin and that means that we're going to have to sit in our own sin and the sin of those around us for a time. Uh, and so I hope that having framed it, you know, that uh, we don't pretend that it's not true, that there is hope and redemption and forgiveness in Jesus. But I think it helps us to realise how amazing what Jesus has done for us to confront and be real about the ugliness of sin. And so I want to say up front tonight that I'm probably going to make you uncomfortable. There are a few reasons why you may, might feel very uncomfortable with what I'm going to talk about tonight. For some of you, you might be uncomfortable by some of the things I say because you might think they're not the kind of things we should talk about in church. Or I might use some language that you think is a bit too blunt and we should be more subtle and a bit discreet uh, in church. And I apologise if I offend your sensitivities, but the Bible is blunt. Uh, and the Bible confronts us with the ugliness and the reality of where we are. So I guess you could say there's going to be some adult content tonight, um, but we are all adults here. For some of you, you might be uncomfortable because if you're one of those people who has heroes in the Bible, then I might be about to destroy the reputation of one of your beloved characters. A lot of people say that David is their favourite, but there are no heroes in the Bible other than King Jesus, the Messiah. All of the biblical characters are human, weak, sinful and flawed just like we are. And so again, I make no apology for tarnishing David's reputation because the Bible does that. He did that, not me. But we're going to talk about it. Unfortunately for some of you tonight, you're going to be uncomfortable because the things we're going to talk about are part of your experience. And I know that there will be people here who've experienced the kind of abuse and sin against you that this passage talks about it will touch on your wounds, it will touch on your trauma and I want to say to you that this is a safe space and we have framed it in that way um, and my prayer is that you will feel um, that it's worth listening um, but you might be aware of that and prepared for that and uh, know what you need to do to be able to listen well to that. For others of you, and I want to be real about this too, this will call out areas of your life where you are pretending where you are deceiving yourself, where you think you are getting away with your sin and you need to be confronted and willing to repent. And if you're not in any of those groups, then maybe we're all in the last one because I think for all of us this might be uncomfortable because we're going to name some realities of our world and our culture that we too often like to pretend don't exist within our churches and they do. And we need to wake up to that fact and we need to own it and we need to name it. This is not an out there problem. This is an in here problem. Therefore, it's an in here problem. So let's not pretend that we're talking about other people tonight. Let's remember that we're talking about ourselves. So let me encourage you to embrace the uncomfortableness and to be willing to sit in it. But if you get too uncomfortable, there are options. You can switch off in your mind. I know people do that during sermons all the time. <laughs> and if you need to, you can go outside because I've given you five reasons why you might be uncomfortable. So you might be walking out of the room for any of those or you might just be going to the toilet and no one will ever know. So do what you need to do. But I think the Bible sometimes wants to make us uncomfortable. Like I said before, it's not just about knowledge here. The Bible confronts all of who we are and it forces us to confront some of the dark realities. So, 
We're going to be looking at a story that takes place in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Well, that's where it's recorded. It doesn't actually take place there. It took place 3,000 years ago. <laughs> recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So if you've got a Bible, you might want to get that out. And I'm kind of going to talk through it, as, read through it as we talk through it together. But I know you're in this series looking at David and I listened to Mark's sermon from last week and he got the good bit and then went on leave and just <laughs> left it <laughs> um, because this is where the story takes a dark turn. And so Israel's second king, famous for being the man after God's own heart, as I said, was not the Messiah. He was a sinful human being. And in fact, I would suggest that what makes him the man after God's own heart isn't his perfect character or his sinless life because he had neither of those. What makes someone a person after God's own heart isn't that they are morally superior. A person after God's own heart is someone who runs after God's own heart and displays confession and repentance and seeks grace and forgiveness. The other challenge, of course, tonight is that we're looking at this chapter and Nick gets to talk about that next week (laughs) with the grace and the forgiveness and the messiness of all that as well. But tonight we sit in 2 Samuel chapter 11, which is a very disturbing chapter. I think it's one of the most disturbing chapters in the Bible and we have to be okay with that. So let us start in verse 1. The narrator tells us that in the springtime, doesn't that sound like the beginning to a lovely story, in the springtime when the flowers are budding and the lambs are frolicking, in the springtime... At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. In springtime, when kings go off to war, David sends out his army and remains behind. The commander of the army, the king who is responsible to lead God's people, the representative of God before them, the one who has been called of God for this very task, remains behind. This is no accident. This is the first detail we're told in this story. The narrator wants to frame it for us. The writer tells us this because David's first temptation in this story has nothing to do with sex or power or money His first temptation is to not fulfill his calling, to not follow God. It's the original temptation. It's the original sin. God has called him to a task, but he thinks he knows better. And so he decides to stay behind. More than that, he expects other people to do the task for him. He's taking the easier way out. He is using his position to his own advantage And so the writer is trying to frame this story for us that David should never have been where he was in the first place. He is showing an attitude of complacency, not keeping himself walking in the ways that God has called of him, but putting himself above them as if the rules don't apply to him, as if what God has said can be second-guessed, turned upside down, ignored, making an exception for himself. And I should say, um, obviously, this is a tricky passage and lots of people spend a lot of time on it. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Hebrew tonight because, you know, you've asked me to come and that's what you get when you get me. Uh, But the Hebrew really emphasises this. Um, In the Hebrew, there's a very kind of normal word order in which you tell stories and this flips it on its head. And this detail, but more than that, within this detail, David's name is put in the front position as if to ring bells in our head to say, hang on, 
This is something that you need to pay attention to. What David is doing here is not what is expected. It's not all sunshine and roses or springtime and frolicking lambs. So then we read in verse 2, One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. Now, I've been to Jerusalem, uh, so I can tell you a little bit about how ancient Jerusalem works. Jerusalem was a city kind of on a hill, and it's like, a, it's like my arm, right? It's that shape. It's kind of this very thin, narrow, it's probably not quite as long as my arm either, <laughs> maybe my hand more, and it's down a slope like that. And then David built his palace up here, up at the top, looking down over this city that goes down the hill today. The today, that, that original city, what they call David City, has two main roads that go one on each side of it. So you can kind of do a loop around it. And the site of where David's palace was, and I've been to the archive rooms that they've discovered there, and then above that where the temple was, sits above. And so David, as the king, as his rightful position, has the role of overseeing the city. That's his job, overseeing the city. Overseeing meaning taking responsibility for it, looking after it, tending to it, caring for it. And yet here what we have him doing is getting up at night and looking at it, overlooking it perhaps rather than overseeing it. He can use that position of power and that position of trust. Nobody else can see over the whole city, only the king. It's a trusted position. He's the king. Of course he'll do the right thing by it. He can use that position to serve and to oversee and to care for and tend his city or he can use it to overlook and to manipulate. And I think the temptation again here is exactly that. What does he see? From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. He saw a woman bathing, or perhaps a better translation would be washing. Not that there's anything wrong with the word bathing, but we hear bathing and we think baths. They didn't have baths in the ancient world, certainly not bathtubs and bubbles. <laughs> so get any of those images out of your ma- ma- mind. This word washing here is a standard word that is used right the, throughout the Bible for purification and cleansing. Baths in the ancient world, I hate to break it to you, were not so much about being clean and not smelling because everybody stank. <laughs> right? Baths in the ancient world and certainly in ancient Jerusalem were about being purified about obeying the law to cleanse yourself so that you might be able to go and worship God in the temple. And let me just point out, I'll come back to this a little bit later, but Leonard Cohen has a lot to answer for. If you know the song, hallelujah, she was not bathing on the roof, right? He was on the roof. She was bathing or washing herself. Again, you've got to think 3,000 years ago, why would you have a bath on the roof? For starters, how do you get water up onto a roof when you've got no running water? Right? She was not on a roof. In fact, what she was doing it was purifying herself. And the narrator tells us this in verse 4. Um, in the original context, it's obvious and it's made clear in verse 4 that we are projecting our assumptions if we think she was in a bathtub on a rooftop. She was in what is called a mikvah, which is a public bathing place to purify yourself. And particularly this one was for women to purify themselves after their monthly period. So she would have been in public probably fully clothed like all the other women, women, going to a bath that had to have running water, right? Had to be fresh running water. Again, no taps, which means it must be near a spring or a river, which means it's probably down beneath ground level. Think baptistry maybe? Do you guys have one under the floor here somewhere? Yeah. (laughs) Think that, right? Except made out of stone. So it would have had steps going down and like you might do for a baptism, what you did in the olden days when I got baptised, wearing some kind of robe, (laughs) walking down the steps into the water to wash herself and then coming back up again. That's what she was doing. He notices her and he notices in particular that she was beautiful. 
Is that in comparison to all the other women he saw bathing and cleansing themselves at the time? I don't know, but he has somehow taken a second look and distinguished her from the others. And perhaps again we have a second moment of temptation where he judges between and makes his own discernment and judgment of who is good-looking and who is not good-looking. He is, again, overlooking rather than overseeing, rather than caring for and being pleased with the people that God has entrusted to his care. He's putting himself in the position to make judgments between them. And so he says to his servants, he sent someone to find out about her. The man comes back and says, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So he inquires, he takes another step down this path and finds out that she is both the daughter and the wife of two men that he knows. Now, if we're reading this story, just running a merry way along, Samuel, you probably don't know who these men are unless you're one of those people who reads the boring chapters of the Bible. (laughs) But the end of Samuel, we get a list of David's mighty men. There were 30 men that David has as his kind of personal protective detail, his bodyguards, if you like, or the elite members of his army, his SAS squad, whatever you want to liken them to in our day. These were his guys. These were the guys whose job it was to look after the king. There were only 30 of them. He would have known them all well. And one of them is her father, and another one of them is her husband. David knows exactly who she is. She belongs to these two men. She is connected to them and they are his trusted soldiers. This should be the moment where even at this point where he's given into the temptation to overlook, he's given into the temptation to discern between them. When they say to him, this is who she is, to walk away. He knew she was married. It's a very clear opportunity for him to do the right thing. Verse 4, then David sent messengers to get her. He sends messages to get her. It's exactly the same word that's going to be used later in the story for what he does for her husband when he both calls him back from the war and sends him to war. He's giving orders. He is the king. He is the commander of the army and he has the right to tell people to do whatever he wants them to do. And so he orders his men to go and get her and to bring him to him. Bring her to him. He is using his power abusively. She has no choice but to respond. And in fact, at this point in the story, we have no idea, in fact, all of the story, what she was thinking. If you're the wife and the daughter of two men who are off fighting a war on behalf of the king and the king calls you to his palace, what would your first thought be? I don't know about you, but I'd be thinking, oh my gosh, one of them's died. Something's happened. I need to go and find out what's going on. We're not told. We're left to imagine. What we are told is what David is doing. He is commanding her to come to him. And then the language of what happens next. She came to him and he slept with her. And this is where we get that random detail in brackets in the NIV. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. In case you missed it before, what she was doing when she was bathing was obeying the law, making herself clean and righteous before God. She came to him. He lay with her. She is active in the coming. She does what she has been asked to do. He is passive. He is active in the sleeping with her. She is passive. I have read many, many books and I have heard many sermons on this passage and it is often talked about as adultery and an affair. And I want to be honest and call it what it is. This is rape. There is no two ways around this. There is no need to make apologies in this. Why do we minimise it? Why do we desire to make David a hero and justify his actions? We're going to see him commit murder in just a few short verses. Spoiler alert. (laughs) 
This is not a heroic tale. And we don't seem too squeamish for that. And yet we too often shy away from naming this for what it is. This is an act of brutality. It is an act of abuse. It is an act of sin. And it is ugly. And then she went back home. He sends her away. He uses her and he's done with her. And it again adds to this picture of an abuse of power, not an ongoing relationship, not an affair. He has taken what he wants and she is no longer of any use to him. Then the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. And we realise the second reason why the narrator felt it important to tell us that detail about her bathing to cleanse herself from her period because there is no option as to who the father of this child is. The impossibility of it being her husband presents an opportunity for David to take responsibility for what he has done, to own up to his darkness and his sin, his abuse of power. No. David's response is again to send word to Joab, his commander of his army, send me, bring me, get for me, Uriah the Hittite. And so Joab sends him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Let's have a nice little friendly chat. What's happening out on the war? That I should be out there leading and really should be all over and commanding and should know exactly what's going on. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Now... I have to tell you a little bit about Hebrew now, and I'm sorry again if I offend anyone's sensibilities. The Hebrew uses the word feet as a euphemism, right? Often when you read feet in the Bible, it means your feet, literally your feet that you walk on. But there are plenty of times in the Bible when it talks about your feet and it don't mean your feet, right? We read about Saul in a cave going to cover his feet, or the NIV helpfully translates with another idiom, relieve himself, right? We read about kings punished by God who become diseased in their feet, you know, disease in their feet. They probably got an STD. Huh? <laughs> the Bible is blunt and upfront with us. We read about women uncovering the feet of a man that they want to show that they are interested in. Probably not his feet. And here, when David tells Uriah to go home and wash his feet, this is not subtle. This is not innuendo. This is a command to him to go home and sleep with his wife. Because David knows that then his sin will be covered up and no one will ever know what he has done. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. David, what a good guy. Sends him a gift. Maybe a nice fruit basket for them to enjoy back at home. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. Uriah the Hittite, the outsider, the foreigner, one of David's mighty men, is more righteous than the king himself. He knows that his job is to be at war, that his commission and his calling, that his friends, his teammates, his fellow soldiers are out there giving their lives for the cause. And so he won't go and do this. There's a lot of irony in this story. There are so many blatant hints that what David is doing is appalling. So, even, uh, even Uriah is more righteous than David. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? 
Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How can I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Is David feeling the arrows in his heart? Or is he too blind to see what's going on? David has tried to tempt him, tried to get him to do what he's entitled to do, but what he has decided is not the righteous thing. And Hittite, Uriah, resists. I'm going to come back in a minute and talk about temptation as we um, you know, come out of the story, but I think what this shows here is clearly resisting temptation is possible. You can be like David and think the rules don't apply to you or you can be more like Uriah. And not just about the rules, but about relationships and honouring of his fellow human beings, the trust that has been placed in by them. Does David take this opportunity to be confronted by someone else doing the right thing and repent? No. David says to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day at the next and at David's invitation he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. Now he's not just abused the wife, but he's abused the husband. Trying to get him drunk, trying to get him to do the thing that will cover up David's abuse and sin. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Even drunk, the foreigner, the outsider, the Hittite, is more righteous than the king. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Now David has added murder to his list of sins. This is one of his trusted companions, his bodyguards, his mighty men, his heroes. And he is just using him as cannon fodder so that he might escape the consequences of his own sin. Joab... Again, the same language used, sent, commanded, ordered. This is a military world where these people have no choice. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men fought in David's army fell. Moreover, as if an afterthought, Uriah the Hittite died, just as David wanted him to. His sin has compounded upon sin and now he has taken someone else's life to cover up his own evil. Job's an interesting character in this story. If you keep going through Samuel, you might come back to him and see some of his own flaws and weaknesses. But Joab sends David a full account of the battle. He instructs the messenger this way. When you finish giving the king the account of this battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall? Why? So that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? And if he asks you this, then say to him, again, as if an afterthought, also, by the way, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Job knows what's going on. He's a sneaky little one. He is able to spin this to his own advantage. It's almost blackmail material. So the messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite 
is dead. His trusted companion, his friend, the man who had promised to give his life for him has now died to cover up David's sin. Does David repent at this point? He says to the messenger, say to Job, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. It doesn't get much bleaker than this picture of David. Abuse of power, rape, murder, cover-up, blasé complacency at the loss of life. And then we return to Bathsheba. In verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. David didn't mourn, but she did. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought. Again, she is passive. Had her brought to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. God is not absent from this story. It seems like it is for, he is for a while. And certainly if you're looking for God in the man after God's own heart, you will not find him there in this story. But God is aware. God sees he sees Bathsheba. He sees what has happened to her. He sees what has happened to Uriah and the casually and casual and cavalier way that David messes with his life and takes his life. And God is displeased. It's a strange wrap-up of the story for us, certainly the fact that she comes back and becomes his wife. Culturally, there's not really any other option for a pregnant widow. And in fact... I think last week you looked at the story of Mephibosheth. There's even a possibility here, and I know the text doesn't actually say this, but I wonder, that David could be seen here as doing a good thing. Look at that great king. One of his great men's wives is left pregnant and alone, and he has taken her in like he took in Mephibosheth. I know Mark had trouble last week as well. And brought, him to her ta- brought her to his table. He's looking after her. What a good guy that David is. Nobody knows. David thinks he has gotten away with it. But we know the truth, and as the narrator makes clear, so does God. God is displeased. Nothing in this story needs to be justified or apologised for because the point of this story is that David is far from the God who he is supposedly the man after his heart. So let me just stop for a moment and let you stop for a moment and breathe because the reality of this story, the reality of the biblical narrative is that it doesn't shy away from the ugliness of life. It is not a simplistic story of heroes, but a story of a God who is interested in and concerned for all of life, including the really dark stuff. So what does this have to say to us? I want to talk briefly about Bathsheba. I want to talk about David, and then I want to talk about us. I've kind of said this along the way, but I feel like particularly as a woman, but not just as a woman, I think anyone speaking on this story, I feel like we owe an apology to Bathsheba because if I can be really blunt and honest, for the last 3,000 years, she has essentially been slut-shamed by the church. She has been called an adulteress and a temptress and a seductress. She has been called a willing participant. She has been called someone who had an affair. Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, as we said, makes her responsible and lets David off the hook. It was all her fault. Rembrandt, one of the greatest painters of the medieval age, and Rubens both painted her as sensual and eagerly flaunting herself before him. Marc Chagall paints it as if it was some loving mutual encounter. She is painted as a seductress and temptress, and I have read books even and 
articles even this week where people pin the blame on her and that is not what the Bible says. The responsibility in this story lies in one place and one place alone, squarely with David. And this is important for us to name because we live in a culture and a context where that has been done to far too many women and men who have experienced abuse and mistreatment and violence and rape and have been asked questions like, but what were you wearing? What were you doing in that place? Why were you out so late? What did you say that led him on? And we have a text that our God has given us from 3,000 years ago that says that is not how this works. We have a saviour, King Jesus, who says that the responsibility for lust lies in the eye of the beholder. You realise in his culture, given the time and place Jesus lived, when he says if anyone looks at a woman, you know, if, if you um, look at a woman lustfully, he could have said you should cause her to cover herself up so you won't have to lust after her. That was what people of the day were saying. Let me tell you, that's what people today are still saying. And what does Jesus say? Cut out your own eye. Cut off your own hand. The responsibility lies with you. I've been part of a group over the last year of women from across Baptist churches nationally working on a project for a tool to respond to domestic and family violence, to name the reality of this in our churches. And one of the other women in this group is a friend of mine, Kim, and we've basically just subtly been on a bit of a crusade on Facebook over the last year because we have started noticing how often, which seems really random in Facebook of all places, that this story gets mentioned and casually terms like affair and adultery get dropped. It happens all the time. I'm telling you, it's happened at least 10 times in the last six months. And so she and I are like on it. We are now not letting that slide one time. We are jumping on there and saying, that's not what the Bible says. And I have arguments with people on Facebook who are trying to argue with me that Bathsheba was lying in a bathtub on the top of a roof. And I'm like, read the Bible for starters. Learn your history for seconds. You are projecting and I don't understand why. And we need to call this out. This matters because in a context where this is a significant issue, rather than the church being the place where we speak hope and life and truth and stand up against violence and injustice, we have been corrupted by our culture to view things through the same lens that they are. It matters that we get this right. And please, please, men in the room, don't hear me saying this is a male versus female thing. That's how this story takes place and this is often the context but it is also the other way around and it is also male-on-male violence in our world that we need to be serious about. We need to understand where responsibility for abuse of power lies. And if I can steal one moment from Nick's sermon next week, the prophet Nathan paints Bathsheba as an innocent lamb in this story. And so we need to be saying to you, if you're here in the room tonight, and to those in our world, if you have been abused... If you have experienced sexual violence, you are not to blame and we stand with you. What about David? Well, if Bathsheba has been shamed, David has been excused and apologised for and minimised for. And what does that say about us? Why do we see the need to do that? Is it because our view of rape is still kind of the boogeyman unknown stranger in the dark alley? We've been living under a rock because the statistics on rape in terms of relationships and marriage and, you know, the the fact that people are usually known to each other 
I thought about going there and thought maybe it was too far tonight, but the reality of our world and how often rape is used as a tool of war is not good bedtime reading, but is something we need to name and acknowledge and be aware of. We use softer labels. We excuse and we minimise in a context where the church is reeling from decades of covering up moral failings and inappropriate relationships. We need to get honest with ourselves. We need to start calling things what they are. And the Bible does that. The tempo of the Hebrew in this story is all about David. David saw, David inquired, David sent, David commanded, David took. This is not to be minimised or explained or apologised for. As I said before, why are we more willing to accept David as a murderer than as a rapist? Why have so many well-intentioned scholars tried to shame Bathsheba? Maybe it's because we want to see the man after God's own heart as someone who couldn't possibly do this. Or maybe it's because we don't want to reckon with the temptation and sin in ourselves and in the world around us where the abuse of power has been used to oppress and exploit sexually, violently, in a gendered way, in a way against children. And it just hits too close to the bone. And maybe because it points the finger at leaders and preachers and those in positions of power like me and people who often have the microphone. The felt need to defend David misunderstands this story and it misunderstands the whole point of the biblical narrative that it's about repentance and redemption. Unless we name David for who he is, we will not understand the grace of God and the gospel truth. But let me wrap up. I was actually asked to talk tonight about temptation (laughs) Uh, and there was so much else that I wanted to say but I do think that there is a lot we can say about temptation as well. And so just to kind of wrap up, for us tonight. There is temptation in all aspects of this story for David. He's tempted to not go to war. He's tempted to use his power to overlook rather than oversee his kingdom. He is tempted to take what is not his. He is tempted to abuse. He is tempted to cover up his sin. He is tempted to kill. And so it's a great passage for understanding the reality and naming the truth that even the best of us are fallen, sinful human beings who live in a broken world and are subject to temptation. But the other thing I want to say about temptation is that it's more than a simplistic, individualistic battle within yourself. What we see in the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah and everyone that's involved is that temptation is not just about you, it's about the people around you. We need to stop thinking individualistically, which is hard to do because our whole culture and our whole worldview is individualistic, (laughs) and think in community. Because the issue is the dehumanisation and objectifying of other people. Uriah is expendable. Bathsheba is an object. When David starts treating people as less than himself, when he stops seeing them as his fellow human beings created in the image of God, called to serve God alongside him, that is really the heart of his temptation. And we need to take that seriously. We need to rename the reality of sin and temptation in all our lives and we need to be honest about it. I don't know what temptation you're facing tonight. It might be a temptation to objectify others, to lust after others, to take what is not yours. It might be a temptation to abuse the power and the position that you've been given, to take the trust that others have placed in you and use it for your own ends rather than why it has been given to you. 
to use other people for your own purposes. But the New Testament takes the reality of temptation seriously and says, flee from it. Pluck out your eye if you need to. Don't pretend that this isn't a live issue for all of us. Don't pretend that this is an out there story. It's an in here story. And I want to apply this to one thing in particular. And yes, I'm going to go there. I want to talk about pornography. Because I think it is one of the greatest temptations we're seeing in young people today. And we have to start talking about it. Or if you've already started talking about it, we have to keep talking about it. Because all the kinds of things that this story points out find themselves exploding in our world through this issue. And I get that I'm not a guy. But let me say to you guys, this is not just an issue for guys. <laughs> the stats on women are climbing the charts. You know, I think the stats now on guys are like 95% and women are about 80. We're catching up. Yay. And I think it's helpful to hear it from a male perspective, but I think it's also helpful to hear it from a female perspective. Because I want to say this, this is not just about you and God. It is about you and God. It's about your own heart before God. But think about this sin and this temptation in the context of other people. Don't think, well, it's not hurting anybody else. Because as we've seen in the story of David and Bathsheba, the consequences and the ramifications for other people are huge. People's lives are destroyed by what David does. And I want to suggest to you that people's lives are being destroyed by the epidemic of pornography in our churches, not just out there in the world. If you are using pornography, you are participating in a culture that is designed to objectify and denigrate other human beings who are created in the image of God. Are you okay with that? Let me tell you that no little girl grows up wanting to be a porn star. And the statistics of trafficking and exploitation of children and women around the world today connected to the porn industry should make your hair stand on end. It is an industry that exists to exploit other people and damage their lives. And if that doesn't convict and confront you, it is also damaging to your own relationships, to all the people in your life because you are participating in an act that makes you unable to see other people the way that God sees them as human beings created in the image of God. I know people talk about this will damage your relationship with your spouse or your future spouse and I believe it will, but it damages your relationships with your friends and your sisters and your brothers. It damages your relationships with all of those around you, the people you are called by God to be partnering in the gospel with as fellow image bearers. And it is damaging the culture in which we live. Melinda Tankard-Reese, who runs Collective Shout, is a friend of mine and She's the kind of person that you, you kind of don't want to hang out with because the story she will tell you will just disturb you. The impact that she is seeing and the research is seeing of porn on relationships, on mental health and on physical health. Girls as young as 12 needing surgery so that they can have their both reproductive and urinary systems okay for the rest of their lives because they have been coached into acting out what people have seen in porn. It is horrifying. It is graphic and disturbing. It's creating unrealistic expectations amongst us about sex, about relationships, about humanity. And we need to call it out. The Bible and the gospel has to be able to speak into this and every other issue 
Otherwise, we are wasting our time because we don't just want to be people who get it right in here. We want to be people who change the world. So if that's you tonight, we're going to name a couple of things that you might want to do. Sit in the uncomfortableness, be confronted, be challenged and do something about it. Perhaps for others of you, male or female, the temptation is more subtle. Let me say for a lot of women, it might not be porn, but it might still be objectification of your fellow human beings in ways that are more subtle, from fantasies to romantic ideas that are equally selfish and equally not treating other people the way that God would have you treat them. We need to get honest and find spaces to talk about it. We need to not pretend we've got it all together and admit that we, like David, even though we run after God's own heart, exist in a broken and fallen world, experience temptation, struggle with it, and need one another, the gospel of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to respond to it. But just like David can't experience God's grace and repentance in the next chapter until we sit in the darkness of this chapter, we're not going to be able to fully experience the freedom and grace of Jesus unless we start talking about this and stop pretending that this doesn't apply to us. So, where do we go from here? Let me say a few things. For those of you who have experienced this ugliness, if you are a survivor of abuse and exploitation and other people treating you as though you are less than human, let me apologise on behalf of the church for the times when you have been minimised or not believed and especially when the Bible has been used to do so or the church has taken the side of the powerful and told stories that have made you feel like you were to blame. If you are one of the significant number amongst us who have experienced sexual abuse, let me say it loud and clear, it is not your fault. The responsibility lies with the abuser, with the person who used their power to damage you. And you need to know that that is how God sees you. You need to hear the message of truth and hope. And knowing that we're talking about these things tonight, um, we're going to put up that first slide, Maya. Um, if you need to get help, these are some great places you can go. 1-800-RESPECT-LIFELINE-YARROW-PLACE. There are plenty of people and resources that are available to us. Don't feel like you have to stay in the uncomfortable place that I've put you in tonight if you need support. Secondly, because I don't want to assume that these people are not in the room, if you are someone who has perpetrated abuse, violence, exploitation, harassment, minimisation, objectification against your fellow human beings, David's story is one of redemption. There is a call to resist, but there is also grace and forgiveness for you. Please come back next week <laughs> and listen to that story more and sit in the messy reality of God's good grace. Have the courage to own up to your mistakes and your sin and seek forgiveness and restoration. It will be difficult. It will require making yourself vulnerable it will be the opposite of what your sin might have made you feel. For all of us who are and will be tempted, temptation can be brutally ugly and it can be more subtle. It can range from the temptation to not put yourself where you know God wants you to be through to the temptation to take another person and abuse them as if they were your own. Hear me well that temptation 
It's not just about you. It's about us. It is about our relationships with one another as well as our relationship with God. We need to be honest with one another. We need to seek accountability and we need to seek help. And so we're going to put up the next slide. A couple of good resources and there are plenty more. We got, yep. uh, so if you've struggled with pornography, Fight the New Drug uh, is a great place to start. If you just want to be educated more and be horrified and shocked to shock you out of your participation in it or to understand the problem amongst others, then there's Collective Shout. And if you would like someone to pray for you and pastorally care for you right here and right now, Nick is available, Ivy is available, I'm around. There are other people here who would love to help you and walk with you and not let you walk away without (laughs) recognising that. And finally, for all of us who have been tempted to ignore these ugly realities in our world, The Bible does not do that and the church can no longer do that. We need to name it and we need to call it out where we see it. I've been accused of many things. (laughs) One of them is being a feminist. And I claim that name but my feminism doesn't come from the feminist movement. It comes from the scriptures. It comes from a God who notices and grieves when any of his beloved children, whatever gender, whatever race, whatever background... Those created in his image are treated as less than by others. We need to call it out and stand against evil in the world, not just ourselves. Wouldn't it be great if rather than being known as the perpetrators of abuse, the church was known as the place that called out abuse in the world and that modelled a different way of life, of relationships, of honour and value and love and friendship as sisters and brothers who value one another and walk together as co-creators of the kingdom of God, which is breaking into our world of the gospel truth, that there is grace and hope and transformation. Thank you for sitting in the darkness with me, and I pray that we might all find the light. Let me pray. God, these are big topics and they confront and challenge all of us and they touch on areas of brokenness and woundedness and hurt and sin and darkness and temptation for all of us. God, I pray that your word would speak to us tonight in powerful ways, not my words. If there are things that I have said that are not of you, God, just let them fade away and be forgotten. But what you are saying to us, Give us ears to listen. Give us hearts to be broken. Give us hands to reach out to one another and give us feet to walk this journey together and give us voices to speak out the truth so that we might be those who experience your grace and your redemption and those who live it out to offer to a world that is drowning in this kind of darkness the alternative, the light and hope and grace of your kingdom. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.